Alright. Alright, welcome to A Hill to Die On, a Walter Hill themed podcast. Uh, I am Chris Irvin. Uh, today I am joined by not one, but two people. Hey everybody, uh, will both of y'all introduce yourselves? Well, as uh, the usual, my name is Ford Walker, uh, and I'm. we are joined by special guest, guest host, Brewster's Million expert, Carolyn. <laughs> All right, yes, yeah, so we have uh, one of our favorite kind of podcast guest situations, the uh, husband and wife uh, joining, uh, uh, joining the, uh, the crew. Um, so, uh, Brewster's Millions, uh, this film, uh, was directed by Walter Hill, it was released in 1985, uh, it was produced by, uh, Larry Gordon, his long-term, uh, producing partner, and his newer friend, Joel Silver, um, and it was written by, uh, two hacks, whose names I have to look up right now, uh, two guys who wrote Brewster's Millions, and, uh, their names are Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod. Uh, they also wrote other uh, wonderful hits like Space Jam, the 1996 uh, <laughs> Bugs Bunny Michael Jordan movie, which is worse than you remember. Uh, and and uh, my stepmother is an alien, uh, which I actually haven't seen. Uh, it might it might have some uh, some fans out there in in the world, but I am unfamiliar with it. Uh, they are also responsible for uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's two uh, dives into comedy uh, during the late 80s, uh, Twins and Kindergarten Cop. Nice. So. Well, so, again, there's some de- decent movies in there. Space Jam obviously isn't one of them, although now that you mention that, I feel like there's could be a little bit of kinship. And I mean, maybe because, I'm, uh, maybe because it's a sports comedy, but like... You know, I feel like there's some of that weird energy going on in both Space Jam and in our movie that we're discussing today. Um, Chris, I gotta just, off right off the top, I gotta say, um, you know, my first thoughts on Brewster's Millions. A, it's the least racist movie that we have <laughs> watched, which was refreshing. But also, on the sad end, no David uh, Patrick Kelly. Like, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I feel like I honestly feel like I missed him this entire movie. I was like, where, where is he? We needed David Patrick Kelly. Uh, I, this is a film in particular that it's kind of surprising David Patrick Kelly is not in because we have a wealth of cameos. Like, like we have a bearded Rick Moranis in a scene. We have uh, 80s comedy legend Yakov Smirnoff briefly showing up to say his catchphrase. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't get Luther in there like that that's that that seems like kind of a shame. And so. I'm actually I did not recognize Yakov Smirnoff at the time because I thought that it was uh, the guy who played Balky in uh, Perfect Strangers, uh, and I just had assumed it was him. But now that you mention it, I, I it makes sense. Uh, Balky is one hundred percent a Yakov Smirnoff ripoff in yes. some ways. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, like we, they saw, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was going to go into some of the other famous people's careers in this film before I would have hit Yakov Smirnoff, uh, it would have been my thought, but, <laughs> but, but Yakov Smirnoff was, uh, a, a legitimate phenomenon, uh, uh, he, he's certainly a part of our childhoods, but the, the guy brought in major money on the stand-up circuit, 
uh, during his career in the 80s. One of the top five most successful stand-up comics uh, between like 1983 and 1990. For sure. When uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall really put a crimp in his style. Um, uh, but uh, Yakov Smirnoff, uh, last I heard, uh, owned a comedy theater in Branson, Missouri, um, and was a uh, COVID uh, denier. Uh, doesn't believe in vaccinations, doesn't believe in masks. Uh, those are for pussies. Uh, uh, which, I guess, he really has adopted a lot of American attitudes uh, as he has been here for so long. So let's just, you know... We, we, can, we like to, you know, obviously go through the major points of the movie uh, on this podcast. I do just want to say the reason that we decided to bring in a special guest host of Carolyn is uh, when we under when we began this project and Carolyn found out that Walter Hill had done Brewster's Millions, she, uh, Carolyn, you were very excited about this movie because... I was very excited. It's probably one of my favorite childhood movies. And I have a memory of going to like a parents' night out kind of babysitting situation. And they had a prize at the end, which was the VHS tape of Brewster's Million. And my brother won. So we had this VHS tape. We had The Lion King and E.T. And that's it. <laughs> so I must have seen this movie about a thousand times. Um, oh my. But I... Watching it again, I had no memory of it at all, but it was still enjoyable. Oh, it was definitely fun. I, I, uh, I mean, yeah, it was, it was interesting to see Walter Hill really go into the, you know, do a comedy, right? Uh, and really just a full-fledged, no, no holds barred. No fooling. Comedy. You know? Yeah, it, and and that I mean, obviously it's a product of its time, but it's also very specifically an '80s comedy. It is a star-driven, like trading places worked so good, right? So let's try to recreate that with different stars. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to kind of exist in the same New York finance world. We're going to shoot in a lot of the same law offices. You know, like like there there is a definite antecedent to this film um, that I think at the time felt more alive uh, than and and Brewster's Millions. Uh, I I read the so. So Carolyn this is movie yeah. has been, I mean, this is one, Carolyn, it was, this is the seventh? This remake? is the seventh version of Brewster's Millions. Uh, it is based on a book that was written in 1902, um, a book I read uh, that has almost already completely gone out of my mind because <laughs> it was such a minor thing. Uh, it's like 107 pages. It's, it's slightly longer than a novella. There are no jokes in it. There are no characters in it. But this is back um, in the day, like when we would say a play was a comedy, in that it was a comedy that no, not every single person died at the end of it. You know what I mean? It's like a generally happy ending, uh, not you know necessarily. Uh, but 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 what it was, I. I was essentially a high-concept vehicle, very much similar to a lot of the movies of the 80s. Like, this book has one idea, and that idea is 
to inherit a lot of money, you gotta spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 and that's a really good hook uh, for a story um, because it's it's elemental in such a way. Sure, uh, you have you have to jump through so many hoops to make this work. Like, uh, um, in in the film Brewster's Millions. Uh, there is a moment uh, where uh, uh, he is offered the wimp prize where he can just get a million dollars and then he doesn't have to deal with any of this. He'll get an inheritance. The rest of the, rest of the money is going to end up in a trust or, or invested in companies. Um, but I don't know why Montgomery Brewster doesn't just take that million dollars yes. And give it over to a lawyer as a retainer, and be like, "There is no way what this uncle is asking <laughs> this is can't legal." Be legal, right? There's yeah, no this way. can't be legal. Like, like it's the requirements. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so just like that scene. So I, well, again, let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's go Monty all the Brewster, way back. Uh, played by um, Richard Pryor, is a minor league baseball pitcher with the Hackensack Bulls. And mm-hmm. he's had generally a fairly lackluster career. He's well past his prime at this point. And um, he then... Um, he uh, did you see his pitch? I feel like we have to talk about... Um, there is a moment in this movie, uh, right at the beginning, we get the initial crawl uh, uh, in this kind of almost like sort of flowery language this is the story of montgomery brewster a relief pitcher in the minor leagues of life who got handed the american dream ellipses on a very hot plate um so so he's he is playing for the hackensack bulls they have a railroad track going through their minor league field uh but which is uh, funny i mean i i gotta wonder is that real at all is that is there a place where there's a minor league baseball team that has that um, that has? I'm it? gonna I'm gonna say not in 1985. Okay. Like that probably did happen during the old barn burner like Negro Leagues era. Like sure. I'm sure there were dilapidated fields that had that kind of thing. But by 1985, I'm pretty sure most minor league stadiums didn't have like. Union Pacific going through. Right, right. I want to talk about Richard Pryor's pitch. Um, It may have been a curveball. It may have been like an Esfis. Like, it was in no way Major League ready. Uh, This man is in his 40s. He believes he's going to play for the Mets. I'm not buying it. For sure, yeah. Yeah, he certainly lives in a fantasy world. Like, well, so he does... So, uh, yeah, so he... There's this big bruiser comes up to bat, and he uh, pitches them two foul balls, basically, but they're, you know, to the grandstands. And then finally, he does this huge, I don't know what you'd call it, like an alley-oop pitch, basically, where it's just like a softball pitch. I don't know. And he, for some reason, the guy swings at it, and he misses, and the game's over, and you're like, well, that was dumb, right? I mean, again, uh, yeah. I hate baseball. Chris... We, this is I'm sorry we're... you hate ba- Okay, yeah. yeah, this will be difficult because baseball is one of the uh, uh, the great American pastimes. They're like, you know, you, I also think you don't like the Grateful Dead, the great American band. Yes. So uh, uh, both baseball and the Grateful Dead, uh, like America, have a lot of problems, uh, but they are both emblematic about the spirit of this country. Uh-huh. Big, dumb, weird... 
uh, sometimes transcendent, mostly weird and boring and bad. Uh, uh, and I can understand why you would, uh, retreat to the cosmopolitan world of soccer or football. Uh, things, things in, in footy are a little bit more, like, legible. Oh, but Uh, could you imagine the British remake of this with, uh... It's a like a. a They're playing silly... rounders or crickets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and... there we go. Even it make it completely obtuse and nobody can pick it up. So, yeah. anyways, so uh, uh, Monty, uh, there's a guy at the at the game who keeps on taking pictures of Monty, and he's like, "I'm getting scouted. I'm getting scouted." After the game, they go out and have some drinks. Um, Monty is oh. hitting on the girlfriend, who's very obviously in the, in the previous scene, is the girlfriend of the big bruiser who he struck out. And the bruiser shows up to take her home, and they get into a fight, and Monty and John Candy's character, Spike Nolan, what a great what a great character name. Never in a million years would I ever look at John Candy and be like, that's a Spike Nolan right there. But as far as a baseball name goes, that's a great baseball name, you know? Um... So he goes to jail, this, the, the person taking pictures bails him out, takes him to New York, at which point we finally, we get to the big plot, you know. The, the dump, yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, the vehicle, the, uh, what's going yeah. on here? Okay, so so let me, um, and, and I, I do want to bring Carol in, in on some of this stuff, too. Like, how did you feel? Uh, uh, first thing I want to mention, the bar uh, is named Torchies. Uh, so yes. uh, we're, so we are a, getting, yeah. yeah, so we are getting some Walter Hill callbacks. It's the same name of the bar that Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte went to in 48 That's hours. That's what I said. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, we also have... Uh, Another early uh, Rai Kuger, uh score uh, on a Walter Hill film. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if this movie really needs so much harmonica and blues slide <laughs> guitar, um, but but like Aniko Morricone is to Sergio Leone as Roy Codger is to Walter Hill. Uh-huh. Like, there's there there's this uh, uh, connection between uh, a score writer and director. Where no matter what the events are, like the mood is always going to be this dusty Western feel. Right. Even though this film takes place entirely in New York and has no real connection, I, I guess his uncle is a wildcatter or something. Like that's how he gets his money. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know if it's ever if it's ever fully uh, explained. Um, but like during during the scene in Torchies. It is not made clear. Uh, 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 Richard Pryor and John Candy are flirting with these two ladies. Yes, and they seem down for like an orgy. Like, yeah, they almost these immediately. Girls are so into it, and it never at any point of like, oh, do I have a boyfriend? It's not like it's not like John John Candy and Richard Pryor being sleaze balls and hitting on these obviously taken women. These girls are into it, okay, but they're still being sleaze balls. This whole massage explanation oh, was very yes, upsetting yes. to hear John Candy speak like that. I was very upset. It's funny because again, when, when he goes on a while about it, yeah, the Reiki version of basically yeah. what it is, white guy Reiki. Uh, but um, he also it was funny before we watched the movie. 
Carolyn was like, oh, well, you know, John Candy in this movie, he's, he's always a lovable, affable guy. He's never, like, goes blue. Uh, there's no way he's, like... So, because we were trying to gauge, like, was this movie appropriate for Carolyn to have watched 50 times as a child? And Carolyn had hypothesized, there's no way John Candy would be, you know, be swearing or that kind of thing and like the first thing out of his mouth is like this fucking shit or something I don't know but like <laughs> I don't think it goes I I, th- I do not believe this film was R-rated so uh, it definitely didn't shit. drop it's an F-bomb it's just shit yeah. 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 good old PG-13 mm-hmm. just shit but well and again well so in a very famous episode of a different podcast which we're not going to mention they once asked the question of the uh, of a different movie who is this movie for? And I kind of, I mean, is this an adult comedy? Is this, I mean, to me, it seems like this is a movie that was made to make kids laugh. Like, it's a kid's level of comedy that uh, was, but, you know, it's obviously an adult movie because they're swearing and they're talking about naked massages. And also, like, the concept of the movie it really hits like so blank check came out about a decade after this film or thereabouts uh um which uh is a very very bad movie which has been incredibly influential because the screenwriter of blank check wrote a very famous screenwriting book called save the cat uh blake eskin blake howard i the guy's first name is blake um uh uh, same thing like Robert McKee. Like, they, they were the two screenwriting gurus who really uh, shaped a generation of Hollywood executives to be able to... They read those books so they know what movies sell so then they could turn around to screenwriters and say, well, this film doesn't have a Save the Cat moment. This film doesn't have this other thing. Uh, uh, this isn't hitting the beats that are, it needs to hit to be successful. Um this film is is like you know blank check a movie where a child uh writes a check for himself for a million dollars and discovers a million dollars doesn't go as far as it goes only it's about adults and it's a remake of a film from 19 you know from 1927 that starred fatty arbuckle that's you know wow yeah so it's yeah it is interesting i mean don't get me wrong, I, I had fun. I was, you know, as you had mentioned, there's a lot of manic energy in this movie. It was, it never really had a dull moment. Again, it was, you know, what we love about Walter Hill, there's not a lot of questions that are asked. There's just, things just no. happen. It just is like, oh, okay, we've got to take it for granted and we're not going to dwell on it and we're going to move forward. And, and, um, and especially once, you know, uh, they, you know, uh, they're bailed out of jail, um, uh, they, uh, a guy gives him the business card. I believe it's it, it's the guy who he thought was scouting him, right? Yes. Who was scouting Which, this? Yeah. Uh, talk about William Patrick Kelly would have been great as that guy. But oh, he would have David been. Patrick oh, Kelly you're completely good. right. David yeah. Patrick Kelly would have been really great as that guy. Um, uh, I, although this sleazy '80s guy is also pretty good, as like the mm-hmm. uh, low wrench uh, private eye mm-hmm. who uh, looked at William Hurt and Body Heat and was like, "Ah, I can't do that. I'm just gonna go be scummy." Um, but that gets him uh, uh, that gets him to New York to the immaculately uh, festooned uh, such big bookshelves such leather bound books are in this law office 
and they bring out a 16 millimeter reel to play the will of uh, Montgomery Brewster's. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so again, we kind of mentioned this previously, but this whole time, Richard Pryor's uh, Montgomery uh, Monty, excuse me. He thinks that he is getting scouted by the Mets. And this forty-five-year-old man. Yeah. Who? Yeah. Who weighs a hundred and ten pounds, yeah. soaking wet, yeah. and whose best pitch uh, looks like a mistake. Yes, for sure, for sure. He's, he's getting. Yeah. Uh, so he goes. They sit down, and these two lawyers uh, plus a mediator start giving him the rundown of or what's going on. Well, I, well, you're right. That's not true. Uh, they start playing this this recorded will um and from his great uncle yeah yep uh didn't you know your great grandfather was a honky he (laughs) says early on in it um (laughs) by way of explanation and so montgomery brewster uh is apparently a scion of uh elite society um i or at least Texas elite society, because I believe the money was earned through uh, that most uh, expansionist American dream of just random rich guys going to places in Texas and Arizona and Northern California without any kind of education in uh, oil finding. Mm -hmm. Yet, because they had the resources, they hit pay dirt. Right. And so uh, fabulous, he becomes fabulously rich. But it looks really funny about this scene, right? Is that he's he's going through and he's explaining, you know, that Monty's inherited a, a vast fortune, um, and he starts to break down the rules of what he needs to do to inherit this. But there's this conversation conversation that they have Monty and his great uncle are having as if the great uncle's in the room and is not actually dead. And you're just like, well, what? why is he, he was just anticipating that like Monty would ask him that question at the point? I don't know, it's really- I mean, yeah, obviously that was the joke of it, yes. is that is that the questions would be so obvious that you could uh, make a pause in your record, <laughs> you know, to, to be like, He's going he's gonna to object to this, but I know it's coming. This is <laughs> an insane situation. Yeah. So this is, of course, where we learn what the deal is. So Monty okay. has to spend $30 million in 30 days. And the great uh, Montgomery, the great uncle, says it's because he wants to make sure that Monty never wants to spend money ever again. He wants to make him sick of spending money. So, yes. like, when he was he, a kid, he, and he had to smoke a whole box of cigars, which... I don't know why. Remember, the guy, the guy who said this, uh, clearly continued to smoke cigars for the rest of his life <laughs> yes. because he is on oxygen. Clearly has emphysema. Has a nurse, uh, a nursemaid as an aide. So, in his mind, he's like, "Well, I smoked those thirty cigars so fast, I never smoked again." He yes. clearly did. Right. Like, I, like, <laughs> so, it's so like, is the, Well, and it's funny because this gets spoofed on later on in a King of the Hill episode where they make Bobby smoke a pack of cigarettes and that just makes uh, Hank and Diane, or Hank and... Peggy start Peggy smoking. Peggy start again. smoking instead. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, bu- 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 so, yeah. I, I, 
I do want to ask Carolyn. So, Carolyn, um, when you were younger and you watched this film 400 times, like, once once you got to the point where he gets the money, like, does anything in the preceding 30 minutes appeal to you? Or is it only once he starts, like, getting manic and ramped up with all this cash yeah, when it starts taking off? I don't remember anything about baseball. I don't remember the plot. I just remember him spending a lot of money in, like, funny ways. So we were yeah. also fans of Blank Check because it was a kid doing it instead, and that was hilarious to us. It, exactly, but if you think about what happens in Blank Check, other than the kids spending the money, it's the most insane, like, crime movie, almost. I where <laughs> We'll have to do it for another episode. I have not <laughs> seen Blank Check, but isn't this also the same premise as the movie Millions? From the kind of blank check and millions have a very similar uh, premise. They find like old currency before they switch to the euro. Right. Okay. Yeah. But 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 in both cases, it's like children come into a lot of ill-gotten gains, and they're fans of Richie Rich. Are we big fans of Richie Rich? Poor when we grew up, we're like, oh, this money looks like so much fun. I don't know. I mean, I think any kid would be like, "Ooh, yeah. money would be fun." But yes, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, I guess for this, for now, unless Chris objects, I think it might be worthwhile to uh, go list the rules of the money. So I just so the the deal is, Monty has to spend thirty million dollars in thirty days. If he does that, he'll inherit inherit three hundred million dollars, and he can do whatever he wants with that. But this $30 million, he has to, he cannot spend on any assets. He cannot have anything to show for this money at the end of 30 days. Can't buy houses. Can't buy clothes, can't buy a car, can't buy anything. So uh, he can only gamble away 5% of it, and he can only uh, give charity 5%. 5%. Yeah. Which again, wh- why even? I don't even. Where did these random why did, numbers? Why, yeah, why do you make those specific decisions about those amounts? Um, and he also specifically mentions T bills, uh, something that I feel like I heard talked about a lot in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a treasury bill, a, a low interest, uh, quick loan to the United States government, where mm. basically. Uh, you buy a T-bill for $950, and eight weeks later, you get $1,000 back. Like, not not a financial instrument you hear talked about that often anymore. Although mm. I think they are still available. Should, <laughs> that's where the profits of this podcast are going to go, is towards T-bills. Uh, they so should go to a legal retainer for Montgomery Brewster. Right. Like, that, like we gotta we got to get him out of this nonsense. <laughs> But he does get clothes made. So what happened? How well, they take that clothes back. They were they were they released. Oh, they yeah, they released clothes. They, they, yeah, they were specifically rented tailor clothes. That yeah. they, they do is discuss that, that during that. Is that a yes, real thing? it is not a real thing, <laughs> okay. but it's a thing that has to happen. Again, so this, this is a Parks and Rec episode, right? Rented clothes. Um, um, some other the big things he can't tell anybody about this. That's that's a huge. The major vehicle of this plot is that he can't divulge why he's spending this. So, and that's, you know, where a lot of this, the, the conflict comes up is everybody thinks he's crazy because he's trying to spend it as fast as he can. Uh, he can tell people that he made $30 million. I mean, he has to, right? No, no, everybody's going to yeah, be like, the, where did all his money come The from? New York media is yeah. going to be aware of this. Yes. The Post exists. Like, that <laughs> information is going to get out. So... 
Uh, just a quick uh, a comparison to what happens in the book, uh, which, again, I remember almost nothing about. The one thing about the book is that the reason that the uh, great-nephew gives uh, Montgomery Brewster, who is already kind of a well-to-do, like, he's not struggling in the minor leagues, he's 25, he's okay in financially, he gets a million dollars from his uncle, uh, or excuse me, from his grandfather. And then his great-uncle comes and says, I hated, I hated, I hated, hated, hated my brother. Uh, I want you to spend all my brother's money so it's off the face of the earth. So it doesn't uh, exist do, anymore, basically. So it doesn't exist anymore. It's not in any assets. It's just gone. It's just been wasted. And if you do that, I will give you $7 million. So so there is a spite to that, which is funnier than just mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a rant. $30 yeah. million. Like, again... Montgomery, the great uncle in our movie, is just like, oh, $30 million. I guess it's a tenth of the wealth, so I'll just make him, like, where does he come up with this amount? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I guess, where does where's the author come up with amount? But a, a million dollars. What's also funny is, you know, this 1902 novel, when they're like, well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually thinking of the play, so I apologize if I'm, if I'm misconstruing this, but in the play, right, it was, he had to spend that million dollars in a year, right? And yes, yes. And it does Which is a much more sensible period of time to spend an enormous amount of money yes. in a way that you could actually lose it. Which is something the film kind of returns to about if you have a lot of money, the world makes it very difficult to lose all of it. Yes. As we have seen over and over again uh, over the past few years with like Adam, uh, uh, the, the WeWork guy, what's his name? Adam Nyman? Yes, Nyman, that's the one. Yeah. Um, where, or like uh, Martin Shrekley, or like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it is, it is Elon Musk uh, in yeah, some way. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do, did you Donald see what Elon Trump? How does that make yeah, so Don... money? How many times did he I... declare bankruptcy? But, yeah, uh, I... but yeah, no, you're right. There, there definitely seemed to be a point where once you get a, once you X amount of wealth, it becomes almost impossible to lose that amount of wealth. Um, the world won't let you like. Yes. like the government will nickel and dime you so much when you're poor, but once you hit a certain level of of, of extreme wealth, once you have $30 million, enough breaks are in the system that no matter how much of a dumbass you are, no matter how much money you invest in like uh, public domain icebergs, mm-hmm. it's still going to pay out. Like right, that right. That's one of the... Le- the one thing that can make you lose money in this world is uh, political campaigns, right. which also seems true. Yeah, very funny. So, well, and so let's, so we we hit most of the rules, and the reason we're bringing this up right is because we want you, the listener, to be thinking about, oh, well, how would I spend this money? Where's what are things coming up? And I think they come up with some pretty creative ideas. But all of that is to say, on top of that. He's also given the option of just giving, he just said, there's a briefcase full of a million dollars, and they say, here's a million dollars, you just take it and walk away, the rest of the 300 million uh, basically goes, basically goes to charity besides paying off some lawyers. But, yeah, it seemed, yeah, it seemed like it would go into like a business trust. Like it would be something that the amalgamated uh, companies related to uh, this windfall would be able to use to invest in other, I guess, oil. I, I, I think they mentioned that it's oil, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I haven't watched this film in a month. Um, uh, but I think 
it, it would be reinvested into uh, the business. So um, I want to ask you guys, you two, and it's funny the way that they premise this, because it's very much, again, like, you need to make this decision right now, Monty. You, you either need to do this or this. And it's like, why doesn't he get a chance to think about it? But uh, would you take, uh, take especially after having watched this movie, would you take the million or would you try and go for the 300 million? And I guess I also should point out that he mentioned at this rate that Monty has never earned more than $11,000 in an annual salary in his entire career, which yeah. is... I mean, I know it's the I mean, I mean that makes him he's he's making more than uh, minimum wage uh, in 1985 nationally. A uh, minimum wage was I believe uh, $3.75 an hour. Um, so he's kind of right in th- he's making more than minimum wage, but he has never he's never accumulated any assets. He has no wealth. Um, he has this great uncle who has uh, followed his career closely, yet never revealed himself at any moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess because he's a honky. Oh, uh, uh, one other thing during that uh, film reel. Um, he does say that you cannot buy the Hope Diamond for some bimbo. And I, 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 just, I just want to applaud the fact that bimbo, uh, which is hits the ear harsh like it's an unpleasant word to hear i'm glad it has gone from our lexicon <laughs> for basically. the most part now it's been replaced by himbos actually so yeah, yeah but himbos are cool because yeah. uh, we're hot men um yes. uh, uh, dumb as bricks and <laughs> and there's that uh, uh we're turning the tables we're we're bringing dumb hotness back feminism means now men are himbos <laughs> that's what I'm, I'm sorry Back. The world is all trash. Yeah, I guess, you know, the other thing, too. So it, he can't give the money away, but he can hire people for services. Um, and he can pay them exorbitantly. Yes. Oh, this the but best part of the film. I don't understand how he doesn't just doesn't, he can't just go up to be like, hey, John Candy, guess what? I want you to do a little dance for me. Here's $30 million. She's... she's... He has to pay them a reasonable amount. Does he though? Yes. Because it's like yeah, they say that she's like watching him. The paralegal assigned to him is supposed to make sure it's like a reasonable. Payment. Yeah, she. But but reasonable appears very flexible because yes. he can hire Yakov <laughs> Smirnov to be his personal driver for uh, twenty times his normal wages, mm-hmm. uh, and then Yakov Smirnov can say, "What a country!" So I guess he just. I guess he just can't go. Sp- he can't just give somebody fifteen million dollars to, you know, to to do his hair. It has to be um, an amount of money that would make the comedy continue to work. That's very true. That's very true. And so, and there's some really fun things that in this comedy. So now, now just so that we're clear, what what we're what we're now set up with is again Richard Pryor doing his best to spend all these silly ideas all these great joke things that he comes up with to spend this money and is trying to be thwarted by the two lawyers who would stand to benefit from him losing, basically. And while there isn't necessarily an all-out war between the two, the lawyers are doing back office, you know, back alley deals, wheeling and dealing, trying to get him um, to fail. Uh, so that they inherit the money. 
Um, these these law partners too are like they are such Randolph and Mortimer Duke juniors. Like they're the two main characters from Trading Places. Yes. Uh, yeah. They kind of even look like them. Like just completely drained of anything other than malice. Yes. Uh, there there isn't uh, like like the plot of Trading Places involves two rich assholes, two rich asshole brothers, uh, giving each other one dollar bets uh, uh, to to solve the world's philosophical questions in a ni- early 1980s uh, Masters of the Universe kind of way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a lot of the energy of that film. In this film, they're just two... I d- they're not the same actors, but they are playing the exact same parts yes. without without that frisson of interest to yes. it. So they're just like assholes who want money. Like yes. there's not exactly. there's no fil- yeah there's no philosophical reason that they want uh, Montgomery Brewster to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Which... So yeah, he does. So well, Chris had mentioned some of these uh, some of these points. Like, um, well, I guess I just want to ask what 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 was. Uh, did you guys have a favorite, what you thought was terribly creative on, on the behalf of, uh, the production team, uh, ways to spend money or anything that you thought was, I mean, I'll go ahead and say mine. I thought the postcards, they, so there's a... Oh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely sending the, the the inverted, uh, the inverted Jenny, uh, sending, sending that postcard. Stamps. There's yeah. the most expensive stamp that you can get is a stamp that was accidentally printed upside down. It's called the inverted Jenny. Is this a real stamp? Yeah, and um, I don't, I couldn't tell you if it's still around, but you know, it's always. I knew as a kid like what the inverted Jenny is. It, it, yeah, they. I didn't collect they pr- stamps, but you know. Yeah, they they printed like seventy or or some ridiculously low number. They had they had a print run of this Wright Brothers stamp. That they printed upside down, and it went out into circulation. They solved it. They they fixed whatever the printing problem was, but now that stamp is uh, it's. So I just looked it up. There was a hundred in existence, and currently each stamp is at, in today's dollars is estimated value of one million five hundred ninety three thousand dollars. In the movie, they say it's eighty. Five thousand dollars a stamp, I want to say, but basically he buys all of them and sends postcards and to uses everybody. them as postage. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, which that is that is a clever way to uh, uh, take value, use it utilitarianly, mm-hmm. um, yet yet still destroy all the value of this of this item. Yeah, uh, which which is the goal in some ways of this great uncle. So, so again going back to it like the idea that he has is if you spend 30 million dollars in a month you will cherish the rest of your fortune like like <laughs> or just not ever want to yeah i, I don't know just not want to spend it he doesn't and, want and, him and, just and, to and, be like hey, yeah and richard you? pryor throughout uh, the back half of the film is constantly saying i'm i'm sick of spending money it yes. sucks i hate doing this but it's not yeah. like he's actually buying anything of value or like I mean that's that's the thing right is that yeah you probably hate spending this money if it was for if it was for dumb things all the time but like if you actually could buy things that you enjoy that you get value out of he probably wouldn't hate spending the money I guess I don't know but I think that was too easy because you could just go buy like a really expensive house 
Sure. And a bunch of cars. It would be too easy. I think that's why. Uh, I think, I mean, that definitely for the logic of this movie to make it work, it it definitely has to be like that. That is the the assumption that we have to make for it to to function. But it also, I don't think, you know, again, if you... The the entire idea is that you cannot... uh, the money that you're spending is frivolous uh, by design. You cannot spend money in a, uh, a a way to generate more money. It has to be, if you're making an investment, you have to think it's dumb. Uh, you can't buy a house because houses go up in value. You can't buy the Hope Diamond because that's eternal. You that's can't give members. the Hope Diamond to that's a quote. Too. Or what was that? That's, that's only for bimbos. That's only, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, there is no way to create the, like the intoxicating element of this film is about uh, the childish joy of acquiring. But the language in the movie, uh, the language in the will, is you cannot acquire. It has to be um, uh, uh, through your hands. Yes. Like like he he can't buy the Hackensack Bulls, for instance. He can't pay yeah. Jerry Orbach a retainer. Yeah. Um, he can't, uh, other than... Other than we, renting them to then also rent the New York Yankees. For, for the New York Yankees. Uh, um, so, it, and and there's a big Michigas in the middle of this movie where he's just trying to spend the money and he keeps hitting returns on it. Like, the iceberg thing yes. pays out. They come up with a silly idea where this guy's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put some motors on icebergs. I'm going to drive those icebergs to Egypt and sell pe- Egyptians ice water. And it's going to make a million dollars. That sounds solid to me. I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so everybody's like, this is dumb. You can't do it. And so... Uh, so but it works. I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to... This sounds like a boondoggle. I'll, I'll, I'll waste all my money on this. And then... It worked out. Making money <laughs> yeah. because... Uh, that some oil company buys them, realizing like, oh, I could, we could, this yeah, is for us to give money. And, and and he goes gambling and he wins enormously. Yes. Uh, yep. <laughs> that also happens in the book. Um, uh, one thing uh, that does happen in this movie at one point in time, uh, I'm going through my notes. I don't remember exactly when this happened, uh, but uh, his his manager Jerry Orbach. Uh, they're flying in by helicopter um, to, I think, to yes. that game at the end. And Orbach is like, it would have been faster with buses. And right. no well, one would they, know. They, had, they ended up having to, they took the helicopters into New York City, but then they had to get on a bus to get yes. to wherever they were going. And they're like... Yeah, in Hackensack, yeah. Yeah, and they're like, we, we can just take the bus from Hackensack, and it take less time. But... Uh, Oh, it, also, so also brewing in the background during all this, uh, his... Uh, 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 the person who is following him, uh, making sure that he is spending all this money so that the uh, will can be obtained, Angela Drank, uh, the uh, love interest, um, like he immediately sees this paralegal and is like, "Okay, yeah, we're gonna. This is a movie from the 1980s. We're we're two uh, high build actors on this ticket." We're going to be love interests by the end of it. No chemistry. Like no they, chemistry. Do, they she hates do not his like guts it. Pretty yeah, much throughout she, the entire movie. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier. There's no character development. The development in this. Monty is the same person he was at the beginning of the movie. Then he was at the end of the movie. He's just fabulously rich and hates well, spending money. Angela's 
fiance changes from like a, a vaguely like innocent seeming guy to like this evil yeah, lawyer. Corrupted lawyer who it was instantly corrupted by money uh, just with the promise of making, uh, with the promise of a partnership in the law firm, which is again a funny thing. And then there's this whole bit where it turns out he used to be an interior decorator. The, so, this part, I, th I thought the fact that he had an ex-wife who was an interior decorator, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Montgomery Brewster is trying to spend all his money, uh, so he hooks Montgomery up with his ex-wife, who's just like, cocaine decor is what we love. Yes, <laughs> How sure. many white couches can we put in this space, right. you know? Um uh, uh, played by Stephen Collins, who you may remember from uh, Star Seventh Trek, uh, the motion picture, Seventh oh. Heaven, and then a uh, bunch of stuff that uh, when you Google him, you will find out. I don't necessarily want to talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> He's not a good person. You know, I also remember him from jail. How about that? <laughs> yeah, currently in jail, bad guy, did bad things. Yes. Um, <laughs> so then it all started when... He became corrupted by the promise of a partnership in this movie. I'm sure, yes, this is exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 believe, I believe the first ac accusation about him came out uh, before, <laughs> before he started this. <laughs> but wow. anyway. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, 1982. <laughs> we, we don't know, but that's rough. Um, so... Yeah. So we're so he's spending all this money. This is the fun part of the movie. Yes. Like there is a real giddy energy when he's in these press scrums and people are coming up asking for him to invest in things, and he's just like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" Mm -hmm. And and Richard Pryor is a very at, so Richard Pryor at this point he is kind of in the sunset of his yes, career. I'd agree like with the, that. He is... Yeah, or, this is like or, or the end of his peak at the mm -hmm. very least. Like. Yeah. He, he has really done his most revolutionary, important work um, as a stand-up and as a, a film writer. Mm -hmm. um, he has showed up in a variety of Gene Wilder vehicles, like Silver Streak in the yeah. 70s, yeah. Yeah. Um, where he was... They were so great in that movie. And Silver Streak, which is uh, 48 hours levels of dated, um, yes. but is a, a really fun, really good movie if you can get past uh, the fact that Gene Wilder is in blackface for a yes. moment. Um, and then they have a partnership kind of through the 80s and early 90s. Uh, but this is really like uh, Richard Pryor revolutionized a form of, uh, of comedy and really changed the way Hollywood saw black stories. Um, and he could do it because he was such a star. And he ran into very serious personal trouble with drugs, with women, and with uh, lighting himself oh, on fire. fire. <laughs> I was just about to make the same. This, this is this, about this six is years. That. Yeah, this is six years after he lit himself on fire. Which... So he seems more, more low-key. Like, I don't think he's using drugs uh, at the level he was beforehand. Um, and he just seems happy to be there. 
um, uh, most of the time. Like, like he he is a very genuine presence on the screen. It's it, it is a very uh, intriguing performance. Yes. Although it is it is completely isolated because he has no chemistry with John Candy. He yes. has no chemistry with Angela Drake. Yes. Like like he 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 really is an island unto himself. But when you yeah. watch this movie, you think, ah, he seems all right. You know, and so one thing, you know, that I I kept thinking is like, well, why doesn't Richard Pryor have any black people in his life? Why? And he does. All of his romantic partners, all the women that we, I mean, I don't know if it's ever explicit that they're hookers or if they, if he somehow wooed these women. He is obviously attracted to black women, right? Like mm-hmm. all the, the two women that we see him with that get interrupted, which actually I really want to bring up this scene where Richard Pryor's wooed this woman. They're, they're getting hot and heavy. And uh, Angela Drake calls and says, I need to talk to you right now. I need so get so the hell talk. out of here, other right. lady. <laughs> like, so what's Richard, going on in that scene? Monty yeah. thinks, mm. oh, she must want to be with me. So he kicks the, the woman to the door and he's like, oh, come on in. And instead, it's like, we need you to have a financial advisor. It's like, come on. This is just, why would they be doing this in the middle of the night? Like, I don't know. It just was the, uh, I thought that was just silly. But, but my, and, and, my point being that all of his relationships, um, besides these two women, everybody in his w- life is white, and they're trying to shack him up with a white woman, too. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, could you not have made John Kent? Could you not have made the Spike Nolan character black? Could you not have made Angela Drake black? I'm not saying it's like ruining it for me, but it just seems like you're just trying to pigeonhole... Uh, Richard Pryor into this white world is really what it comes down to and he's just surrounded by white people all the time and he just I, I, I don't know it just seemed like a strange choice to me well especially because uh, uh, placing Richard Pryor into a white world uh, six or seven years earlier would have been a different thing it would have been more like uh, Putney Swope it would it like yeah it could be it could be a commentary on that kind of uh, moment. Yes. Uh, whereas uh, this film, he is just uh, his race is irrelevant because yes. he's a top line A list star. Right, precisely correct. It's never even like oh, uh, it, a... it definitely is. Uh, it, huh. You thought your great uncle wasn't a honky, like, but but <laughs> okay, that's the level at which line. Like... When yes, in jail, but... John Candy says. It's not racist because I'm in here with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I do feel like we should talk about John Candy and Richard Pryor, uh, the two, the two biggest stars in this film. For sure. Um, who? Can I also just really quickly point out they're supposed to be the same age and they're actually ten years different. And John, I mean, I'm not, you know. Uh, neither of neither of them look like they could be even uh, single A minor league baseball. Well, for players. sure. Like, yeah. yeah. No, they they. I, John Candy. That ship sailed a long time ago. But at least John Candy, his he looks the right age. Like again, nobody's looking at Richard Pryor and be like, "Oh yeah, you're in your thirties, huh? Yeah, I believe that, you know." Yeah. um, and, and and we have seen evidence of his pitching, which is uh, not tremendous. Right. Um. So so. He he tries to throw all this money away. He can't actually get rid of it. He's he's you know he's at the uh, he's at the fanciest hotel in New York City. He's paying Yakov Smirnoff an exorbitant amount of money for taxi service. Uh, the only way he can lose money 
uh, is uh, by running a political campaign. Yes, uh, comes up with which, this genius idea. After making all the money off the iceberg, he's like, oh, wait, I've got it. I will, you know. And this is where the film, like, truly becomes deranged and yes. spins a thousand degrees, like... Like, it, it is a nihilistic political uh, view, uh, mm-hmm. vote none of the above, like, uh, I, I, it, but he's not expressing an anarchistic desire for, like, self-rule, it's just like, throw all this in the garbage, yes. I'm gonna spend all my money on New York ad spend, we're gonna get things in the New York Post, uh, which were very expensive at that point in time. And I don't know what is happening at this yes, point in the sure. movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it does be one of these things where you'd see it, it's like, oh, well, we're making this high moral stand. Like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run to office and I'm going to take down these two corrupt politicians um, by not getting anybody to vote for anything is, is, is the premise there. I mean, it's not particularly... I, his whole point is just to spend money. He doesn't really care, but... That's that's his genius thing, and so again, it, it seems like the movie is trying to like say, all politicians are corrupt, and therefore nobody should be mayor of New York, uh, and it's like, well, that's not how it's going to work, right? They're, di- I mean, it doesn't, and it turns out in the end, it's like, oh well, they just have to have another election, and yeah, nobody exactly. decides to run again. I I mean, I, I at some level, I think the political message of this film is, if you want to lose a lot of money, run for political office, yes. and it ends there. Yes. And, and this film uh, really does not, uh, other other than the things that are kind of in the book, which which um, are about the way that money kind of propagates itself. Like like even in 1902, they knew if you have enough money, the world is not going to let you lose all that money. Yes. Like you you know, Elizabeth Holmes, who lied consistently and completely about her fake company, her fake blood testing company, is still not in prison and is still rich. Like, mm, no. Uh, no. I mean, not to harp on that, but, you know, she, it, there's evidence that she, uh, you know, extorted, what, a billions of dollars from the U.S. government, and yet she's still, as you said, she's got away with it. I mean, she lost the money, but it's also like, well, she also... Didn't get but, that much trouble for it. Maybe she was rich yeah. to begin with. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Like, once you hit a certain level of, of economic standing, there is almost nothing you can do. Um, literally nothing. Like Jeffrey Epstein. Like, literally nothing. You can be the most horrible person in the entire universe, but there is a cocoon of finance that protects you. Yes. Um... I, I also, at some level, the, the premise of this film, uh, that that one paralegal could actually collate and uh, follow yes. the finances of the, of, of the spending of $30 million. It was a mess. The whole thing was a mess. There's no way she had receipts for all of that. Yes. And it's also, yeah. why would you believe that to a paralegal? Isn't that literally what an accountant's job is? I mean... I, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... but but it, I guess it was necessary. Yes. Like even sexier librarians. Yes. This and talk about like the the ultimate like it, the ultimate. Um, I'm not looking at any books. I'm looking at law books, baby. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the most her, boring her, kind of. She's books. got the hair up in the bun, and then by the end, she's got it down, and holy. If you if you love if you love uh, a missionary position paralegal <laughs> that's where you go. Um, 
no, but but the back half of this movie like completely falls off any kind of rails. I feel like like it kind of is also, chugging along. It's also really funny that when they're like, "Oh, I figured it out," they'll just have a we'll just have a political campaign, and all of my money will go away, and we don't question the like the you, I mean. It's not the kind of movie where you question things, but that's literally like they're like, okay, we've solved it. That's the that's the uh, uh, that's the solution to this problem. Is just we're, they're not really explaining where the money's going, except for the le- a really also funny thing. He defames his opponents and they sue him, and he's like, yes, uh, yeah, let's pay out. Yeah, that court. part. This is great. But yeah, that part is pretty like good. Saying, is he spending the money on? advertising kind of assumed like what what is going on but like well you do you do see like a new york post splash page of an ad of his like like there is there is a montage as i remember it again i have i have not watched this film in like uh five weeks um read the book more recently I, also quickly on the book this book sucks um <laughs> we picked uh, up on that chris does yeah it yeah does it deserve to have been made 17 times into movies and plays. I, I, I mean, at some level, I kind of want to check. Like, I did not watch the Fatty Arbuckle version from 1924. I didn't see the 1947 version uh, with there two boring 40 stars. That came out really recently. Mm, but Bollywood. The Bollywood version, I think, might be kind of fascinating because that that's kind of a, a story and culture and, and worldview that might be a very interesting meshing. Um, but, but Cecil B. DeMille made one. Uh, uh, the first yeah. one, yeah. Uh, that wasn't the one Fatty Arbuckle was in, was it? I, I don't I think. Don't I don't think. Yeah. Think so. But uh, but in any case, like like in the book, it's more a a story about the one good rich person on Earth. Like, like in, in this film, we have somebody raised up to a level of high finance of having this kind of wealth. In Brewster's Millions, the guy's kind of already pretty well off. He inherits a million dollars. And then all of his uh, rich asshole friends thinks he's insane because of the way that he's spending his money. And that he would deign to, like, save the life of a porter. Like, that's, that's what really gets the rich people in a tizzy, is that he thinks about other people poorer than him. And that's kind of the, the you know, he, like, has a fiancé who's a hoity-toity New York rich person, and then he ends up with a lady, a lady named Peggy who is from a lower social standing because she sees that he's actually a good person. And then he ends up with all this money. So, so... By making it a rags-to-riches story, it kind of changes the fundamental, not necessarily, like, uh, compelling part of, <laughs> of the book. Like, the, the book. The book has no jokes. Like, it's supposed to be a comedy. There is not one funny line in it. Uh, so, but ult- ultimately, like, this is such a 1985 comedy uh, that almost is divorced from the source material. It, it is completely in conversation with films like Trading Places, um, specifically, and uh, with other high-concept comedies, even The Golden Child, around, around that kind of mid-'80s time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and it ultimately, like... Like there is energy in this movie, which I think is mostly Richard Pryor's doing. Like, like yeah. he he really does come off as 
well, the also, happy. I mean, it's also Walter Hill's doing. Like the the film shots are very well executed. Again, it's his actions oriented style of. I, yeah, all the all the all uh, 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 the climatic sports game at the end I thought was shot incredibly well. Indeed, even um, though it was bo- baseball, the most boring sport in the history of mankind, you still actually I don't know about that because after they pull them off, you they like pull them off for the third inning and you of a three inning game and you're just like yeah. I mean. Come on, that seems so. You get it, but but during that three inning game, you have some terrible jokes and some very strange sound effects that mm-hmm. enter the mix. Like there, yeah. there are two oh, moments. The Foley artists on this movie, by the way, must have had the most fun. There is just so some bizarre sounds going on in this film. You're like, really? Like the I'm yeah, sure. yeah. It's that specific sound that happens two times in the movie, uh, like kind of a woo, like like. Uh, <laughs> Like something that Looney Tunes would have thought would have been too bold to put in. Um, uh, so yeah, so so he ultimately he pulls away from the mayor's race. They play this uh, three inning exhibition match in the hacker. Why didn't they play it in Yankee Stadium? I yeah, guess that's very my one question. They afford to film in Yankee Stadium. But that would have cost Monty way more money to rent. But he wanted stadium. to. He wanted to spend right, money. That's, that's what I'm saying. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. It would have cost the makers of the film a lot of money to be able to film in Yankee Stadium, as opposed to some made-up soundstage in the... Also, it's not as funny because there's not a train going by. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the New York Yankees in 1985 uh, uh, were owned by George Steinbrenner at that point in time. Uh, He would not... Seinfeld fame. Yes, uh, that is uh, where he is famous. Uh, yes. uh, only there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I certainly, well, let me just say, again, my generation, but I never would have known that name in a million years unless it was for Seinfeld. So, anyways, continue. Uh, uh, but in any case, uh, his he drops out of the mayoral race and he mentions the, hey, write none of the above. Uh, and that works out like another mayoral election has to happen because of the write-in vote uh, with that going on. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, oh, I feel so sick. I spent all this money. He nev- During the process of spending the money, he really never expresses any kind of moral sense. Like, he, yes. he's just giddy for the, yes. uh, for the entirety of the movie. Well, I don't know. Yes, he's giddy, but he's also anxious, right? I mean, he's constantly yeah, I, freaking out about completing this task yeah i i i like that way better he's definitely in the middle of a low-scale panic attack or like yeah or just adhding out but but he's down to his last uh thirty eight thousand dollars it uh the cash has been collated it is there um he then so so i'm trying to remember no, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Um, he thinks he has spent all the money. He is going, he's feeling sick to his soul. He's alienated his girl, um, the person who he wants to hang out with, um, his paralegal, um, his best friend. The one thing we really haven't talked about is the way that John Candy and Richard Pryor are both such delightful uh, energies. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love them both on screen. 
uh, they seem to have no relationship with each other, like, um, at all. Right. They do not seem like friends. <laughs> like, no. Uh, I mean, uh, you kind of, at the beginning, you, you get that you're, they're friends, you don't know why. You're just no. like, what, what do these two men have in common besides playing on the same baseball team? You know? Uh, uh, both I guess going to yeah. the same bar after baseball games. Yeah, yeah. Both characters tell each other at multiple times in the film that you're my best friend. Yes. Yet it rings incredibly hollow. Right. Um, and and I did I did read that uh, Richard Pryor uh, talked with John Candy uh, before the film uh, before they started shooting, and Richard Pryor just didn't like John Candy. Like he just oh, thought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could probably see that from what I know of Richard Pryor, you know, him being... A very the, prickly person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just being, you know... Uh, well, and, I'm reading and, a really interesting book right now about Native American comedy, and Richard Pryor discovered Charlie Hill, which, if you've never heard of that... Uh, is it the Clip Nisteroff book? Yes, uh, precisely correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and what the sense that I'm getting from this book, you know, is, is at the time... Richard Pryor was very much the comedian's comedian. He was the, he was the most avant-garde, and he really was delighted in, you know, pushing an anti-white narrative, which is understandable, 100%. Uh, and so then to be put into this movie and made John Candy a million, you know, but, you know, the most, um, at the time, very milk... No, milk toast, not right. Again, he's just affable. He's just a friendly white guy who doesn't do anything wrong and he can get away with anything and it's kind of the opposite I feel like of what Richard Pryor wanted to be doing let's put it that way yeah he just he he he, he really uh yeah exactly yeah Richard Pryor was like well this is your issue like yes. I'm here to do a performance you're here to do a performance yes. we don't have to actually be friends um, and and John Candy has such a puppy dog energy uh, mm. that uh, which works so well in planes, trains, and automobiles. But if he's not if he's not playing against uh, Steve Martin like a giving performer in that way, it feels so sweaty. Yes. Um, well, I feel like they're so barely in a, any scenes together. Yes. They don't even really interact. I mean, they they do a few times, but not. In but a but way. but I think they yeah, and I think they would mostly act, uh, interact in like. Uh, there are not many scenes where they are both on camera at the same right. time and they're having dialogue with each other. I mean, there honestly, are a lot of two shots. John Candy is even in this film by like as soon as the mayoral campaign thing starts, like he he, he basically sort of drops <laughs> off the face of the earth. At some level, who knows what's going on this film once the mayoral campaign starts? Yeah, it like, is, uh... <laughs> But Monty almost leaves without him multiple times, like yes. in the crowd. Like he'll get in a car, and John Candy is not in the car with him. Like his best friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is. Yeah, that is the weird thing about this film is that they. I have such uh, respect for both of them as performers in this movie. They are both very delightful to, to spend time with, but together. They never play off each other. It it is, um, I I feel like it's not just a directing or a writing. Although the, the like, no, I don't think uh, it, during the hour that we've talked so far, like, have any of us mentioned a joke we liked? Are there any quotable I mean, lines yeah, I like in this movie? Joke, but that's about that's about it. 
like yeah uh, 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 this film is all star power and like energy as a much like 48 hours where there are not really laugh lines yes for sure yeah. Um, it must have driven my parents crazy that we watched this like <laughs> 750 times. I should probably ask them. I should have for the podcast. You just asked them. <laughs> oh, should I we call them? I... Should we get the begins on the phone right now? Uh, if they want to do it. Uh, well, Ca- well, Carol, let me ask you. Uh, uh, in this film, like, is there a moment uh, in, in the prior seven-eighths that like really sticks out to you as the one that you remember? No. I just remember thinking it was so funny like laughing so much as a kid but I don't know why <laughs> I I mean there are funny there it kind of the same way like if I think about a film that I thought was very hilarious as a kid that I it's a funnier movie than this movie but it's a film <laughs> that doesn't make my my guts explode the same way it did that than uh when I was 8 which is uh Robin Hood Men in Tights one yes. of the later one of the later uh uh, Mel Brooks movies. There are lines from that film that I can recite to this day. I can sure. see it's a miracle. Oh wait, I'm still blind. Like like. Um, for me, just since we're on the mine, I have no idea why. But when I was like ten, there was a copy of Ace Ventura Two: When Nature Calls for sale at the Albertsons cash you know register, and I begged my mom to let me buy it. And I mean. You know, I don't think I'd even seen Ace Ventura one at that point. Oh wow! Uh, and I just it, yeah. If you if you still haven't seen Ace Ventura one, uh, maybe continue to avoid it. it <laughs> yeah, is... No, I, I have since. I have not. Yeah. No, you don't want to. It's very transphobic. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe the most transphobic movie, like maybe ever. the biggest transphobic hit ever. Sure. And well, like, I mean, it, Crying Game is what it's based on, and that is also equally transphobic, right? Yeah, kind of, transphobic feels weird to say about the crying game. I I might have to watch it again. Um, uh, although yeah, it has yeah, it is transphobic. It, it is very much about the moment of like realizing that your expected sexual partner is of a different gender than you expected, and that's the horror yeah. of that film. But but the crying game really does not ever pretend that that character is a... She's certainly not the butt of the joke. Which no, she is... Yeah, she... Uh, are, are they are not a, the butt of the joke. Um, uh, uh, their gender is not revealed until that moment. Uh, they they have only lived their life in a, in a way that they thought was expressly understood by everyone around them, and uh, they're surprised when it wasn't. Um, Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, this has been A Ventura Die On... Uh, the podcast where we talk about Ace Ventura. Uh, Very, <laughs> yeah, uh, but Ace Ventura, where Sean Young uh, is uh, made made a fool. Dan Marino is in that. Very strange film. Very strange. Uh, I'm glad that... Uh, this is also like, what are film comedies? Uh, uh, at some level, as I have gotten older, I, I, think, I think comedy specifically works better in television uh than film like sure i i don't i don't revisit movies i think that were funny very often hmm yeah i yeah i mean i would agree with that my uh uh 
I would definitely say one of my favorite comedies in recent memory is Black Dynamite. And but that was a movie that I watched like five times the year it came out, and I haven't seen it. I don't think since so. And 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 Black Dynamite, while a comedy, is also a satire and pastiche. Like it's not just one thing. Like it really, Black Dynamite really does nail the look and feel of films from that era, and it also works kind of as an action movie. Like it's not, it's not like a big, it's not like a film like Brewster's Millions, right? It's not like a big studio. We're gonna get everybody into the theater, make them laugh, but they're gonna revisit it on VHS. Um, I do uh, Spaceballs a lot. There you go, Spaceballs. Although. And I, I mean, also again, that's 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 Carolyn's favorite Mel Brooks. I I, I would probably argue there's uh, other Mel Brooks, but I I don't know. As far as Mel Brooks goes, Spaceballs has that general like. Oh, well, for 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 people of our age, Spaceballs uh, I think was the first Mel Brooks movie I saw. Oh, yeah. Um, and and I think. Uh, well, no, actually, probably Robin Hood Men in Tights. Would have Ooh, I, th- I think Spaceballs was my first. Okay. Uh, uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights was second. Um, and, and I think, and, and like when I go back and watch, like I watched uh, Duck Soup uh, uh, between uh, the time I watched Brewster's Millions and the time I'm talking to you today. And Duck Soup came out in whatever, 1929, 1930. Yeah. Um, and it, it has so many jokes, uh, and most of the jokes are so dumb. Yes. That is why they yeah. are funny. They're the stupidest fucking thing you have ever heard in your life. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it is essentially a vaudeville show that is yes. strung together by the loosest concept of, of, of movie making. So when you get something that's trying to be a narrative comedy like this, mm-hmm. uh, like Brewster's Millions is, I, I, I don't return to them. I, I, are, like, are go, go, uh, the last, like, movie that I remember going to a theater and losing my mind with laughter, this was a long time ago, and I have uh, a very strong feeling that this film does not hold up at all. Uh, but my dad took me to to watch Wedding Crashers in 2007. Sure. Um, and I remember the communal experience of losing our minds at the risque, misogynistic humor of that movie. Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, being transcendent in that moment. But I have never wanted to revisit it. You know, like there is... There is something about I Think You Should Leave, the sketch comedy show on Netflix uh, with Tim Robinson, where I will watch those 10-minute clips a thousand times. Yes. It's so easy. Yeah. Whereas, well, anyway, we're... we're, Yeah, we're getting way afield, and we're getting towards the end of this movie. Yeah, and and also, this movie ends uh, dramatically quickly. Like, like, very rapid. We're like, whoa, hit a brick wall, and it's over. I mean, we ran really out of money, just where, like, like Warren tried to scam him out of that deposit or whatever. They, I mean, they set up that twist earlier in the film yes, where, yes. where, where uh, the Duke's br- gun. Yeah, where they're like, "Hey, guy, who's gonna spend time in prison later for what you did to children?" Um, so <laughs> that's actually what it you... says in the script. I don't yeah. know why, but how did they know? Who knows? Uh, 
uh, the two uh, screenwriters may have been hacks, but they they knew something. They, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but they were like, hey, make sure that there's an accounting flaw like towards the end, and he he made sure uh, t- that twenty eight thousand dollars, something like that. Is, I think it's a cool uh, 20. Yeah, it's a cool 20. Okay, yeah, a cool $20,000. And it it's isn't with his ex-wife. Yeah, it's refunded, I believe, from the tailors. Um, from the chairmaker. From the chairmakers. Oh, it's from the chair. So he, so, yeah, so he did use his ex-wife uh, to, to, yeah. <laughs> uh, to help with that. Um, and so they're, they're laying all this out, uh, and... What happens? Uh, uh, we Richard have... Pryor punches the dude. He says he's going to sue. He he's asks like, yeah, Angela do. to represent him. And she says, I'm just a paralegal. And he says, well, you know, will $20,000 be enough to put you through law school? And she says, yes. So that's the fee, I guess. So what is he going to do? Go before a judge and be like, listen, judge, you're going to have to wait until my paralegal becomes a lawyer and goes through law school before we can move. I, look, I, I legitimately think almost all of this could be, could have been solved if he had just taken also, that one million dollars and put it on retainer for a lawyer to fight this. Uh, I just realized something. She, they reveal the big reveal to Angela before the time is up. She knows what's oh, going on. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he yeah. He doesn't d- tell her though. He doesn't. Warren does. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, but, okay. So I don't think that's the, the rules. But he also just woke up that morning and hadn't spent any money. He could have just donated it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but had he already hit the five uh, percent that he we, could? We that don't he could know. Donate. We assume so, but I I, I guess Angela has yeah. the numbers. We'll yeah. have to ask Angela for the spreadsheet. Yeah. She obviously somebody somewhere has Angela's spreadsheet online. It w- it would have been like a coral, like like it would have been 1985, like Microsoft Excel didn't exist yet, so it would have been in Word Perfect like a or dot. something. Beep, boop, beep, boop. Yeah, that's on paper for sure. But yeah, so he, he spends the money, he wins, and and the movie fucking ends, like <laughs> he ends right it. there. You're like, hey guys, that's that's the budget, that's it. We don't yep. need to explain anything else. Yeah, I there mean, there are no more sweeping helicopter shots of the city. You're not going to see them get into a car and kiss or anything. Like we're just going to see the exterior of that thirtieth floor suite, and boom, we're out. And we assume he lives happily ever after. Yeah, we're we're going to hear some blues harmonica and some slide guitar, and that's going to be on that. So well, maybe there's a sequel. <laughs> no. no. Th- Considering no, that they've made eight, they've made eight of these Brewster's Millions movies. They've never made a sequel. Um, I, I think probably because they realize what is the sequel to Brewster's Millions? Oh, this person has a lot of money. And He's spending the money slowly this time. <laughs> and it's actually he, the same movie, just slowed down half of time. And so I, Montgomery Brewster founded Raytheon at the end of. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Not the knife missiles. No. Yeah. Um, That's but your sponsor, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Callbacks to other podcasts. This is the bread and butter of the show. <laughs> um, but I do, I do think that there is an energy during the middle section of this film that is really fun. Like, like once he gets oh, yeah. the money, until once he starts running for uh, uh, mayor, 
Is it mayor or governor? It's mayor. Yeah, once he starts running for mayor of New York City, I should know this uh, uh, one hour and 20 minutes into this record. Um, that part is pretty infectious and pretty enjoyable. I think the rest of it is pretty loose and not, like, doesn't really work. But I want to say that at no point in this film did I say to myself, what the hell am I watching? Or, like, what this was pointless. Or, sure, there was... There was things that were silly but i mean it's a silly movie right well, there's like no plot it's literally like just spend the movie and yeah. the money in an hour and yeah. but if we're gonna play the good you know i mean if i have to view this in the lens of the other walter hills movies that i've watched and i've forced carolyn to watch like this was fun i enjoyed it i would recommend all of our listeners go watch this movie and like Sure, it's not going to enlighten you. Sure, it's not going to make you a better person. But you're going to come out at the end, and you're like, "That was fun. That was fine. There was it was it was, yeah. it was a roller coaster ride, and that's it." And, and and I don't disagree with that. And and you even get the things that I like about Walter Hill. You get uh, uh, the weird uh, insulated male rage mm-hmm. uh, at some moments in this movie. Uh, you get a fist fight in a bar. Uh, yes. uh, so it, there are, there and, and the film does look good. Uh, yes. Like there is no moment uh, during any of the staging. Some of the sound effects, like again, there there are some weird goose woo moments <laughs> that are uh, like Joe Dante wouldn't have done that in Gremlins too. Like that would have been a bridge too far. Uh, in a film that is an extensible uh, uh, homage to Warner Brothers cartoons, yet live action, right? Like, there are there are Looney Tunes sounds in this movie that are bonkers. Yes. <laughs> um, but I also, yeah, I, 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 I would die on this hill. I, I think this is a, a, a fun movie uh, uh, worth seeing. Caroline? Very slight... Yeah. I agree. I was not disappointed. Uh, you know, when you remember movies you loved so much as a kid and you watch them again, uh, they often don't hold up. But this was fine. Like, it was fun. It was as silly as I remembered it being. And I didn't really need any more plot than that. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs>